0: Hi, this is Dave for Night with That Svitch, a series that looks at the intersection between theater and poetry in the edgelands, in the wilderness. In today's episode, I'm actually going to read from an essay of mine. I've written any number of essays over the years, uh, many of them that I don't really talk about or... <laughs> Uh, document, uh, which is probably my fault. But uh, but this one is documented. It's uh, in the book uh, a collection of my plays, The Hour of All Things, and other plays that was published by Intellect Books in Bristol in England uh, not too long ago. Uh, and this essay is called Who Is It For? Practice spectatorship of the body. So it's a p- fairly long essay, but I'll just read a section or two or maybe three of it. It's very long. Uh, anyway, here goes. Uh, who is it for practice spectatorship of the body? What is it that we see when we see something enacted before us? What are the demands that a work makes of an audience? in terms of both form and content? And how is an audience asked to interpret the demands of art? How does one truly regard something in a culture of consumerism? How does one attribute value to work without putting a price tag on it? These four questions are the ones that keep rising to the surface and the many conversations I have had over the last year continue to have. Of course, thinking about spectatorship is not new. If you make art, you are likely at some point in your process to think about the work's human engagement, potential reception, and how it may resonate in the body of an audience collaborator. If you engage in participatory performance, also sometimes called immersive work, Then the question of audience engagement is central to the design of the evening at every level, from how the audience enters the site of performance, indoors or outdoors, to how the audience takes part in the event itself. But whether you are making work for performance that asks the audience to sit in some chairs in darkness to witness enactments in light, or whether you ask the audience to read a script, interact with an actor, or take a walking tour and discover the event for themselves via instructions. The central questions remain the same. Why and how is this engagement now? You may say, hang on, that cannot be the central question. Look, if I'm making something where the audience improvises sections every night inside of a rehearsed and or planned experience, That is not remotely the same as asking an audience to walk into a space, sit in a chair, and simply watch rehearsed events go by. But I would argue that while the mechanics of what you do and how you do them may differ when you are thinking about creating a performance, the question at heart still holds, which is the one of the why and how at this point in time. This question seems to me to contain the riddle of the impossible, which is the instigating point of art making. Every time you are about to make a work of art, you are faced with everything you have done before and everything that has been done before by others. You are faced with history staring back at you, a spectral figure, while you regard the blank canvas. Haunted, yet undaunted, the practitioner dares to make and flirts with the power of potentiality. How will this work demand more of itself, more of the viewer, more of us all so that we can remind ourselves of the extraordinary? Might we risk the impossible through the possibilities that art and the imagination offer? This riddle of the impossible inhabits the making of art and its contemplation. By the impossible, I don't mean indulging in shock and awe tactics, the convenient tools of spectacle. Rather, I define the impossible in art, for the purposes of this essay, as the undefinable limit placed upon the imagination. A note on decreation. Make something unmake it, strip it bare, find it again. The act of decreating text and performance requires a kind of warrior-like vulnerability. It is hard enough to make something, but to then unmake it and unmake it again until it is newly made, that is something else altogether. A text begins in darkness. It reveals itself in light. It rides a canopy of knowing until it collapses into unknowing, into doubt and fear and chaos. Slowly it pulls apart its familiar trappings and begins to show itself for what it really is. I decreate the space between us in order to seek what we can share together. This thing we have between us, this thing of ours, is a shared experience, sometimes with text, sometimes not, sometimes with actors, sometimes not, sometimes just silence and bodies in motion, and then a little light. This thing we have between us reinvents itself from the ruins of what went before, from old words and old tropes and things we take for granted and things we have forgotten about. This thing we have between us, which we sometimes call theater, has no value in monetary terms. It has no value. It has no measurable impact. It cannot be quantified and told what it is because its definition escapes whatever is placed upon it. Its definition is its shape, its heart, its light. Its definition is in the air and you can't touch it even if you try it does not have a price this thing we have between us is not spectacle it is something else something that touches the impossible the unlocated space where we can imagine ourselves beyond ourselves beyond categories beyond gender beyond racial constructs this thing we have between us is something of memory too, and sex, and longing, and being. When we are is, who we are is, who we might be. This is what performance seeks. Walking through art. I am walking with a friend talking about a play we have just seen. It is late on an autumn night. The play was performed in a big building, a proper arts venue, comfy seats, great sight lines, coffee and wine at the concession stand. The play that was written was in the populist dramatic vein. It is what some of us in the field call a play play. It was written with heart and vigor about the unavoidable centrality of an issue that stares us in the face on a daily basis, economic inequities. The arts venue was packed. It was a good night out, to echo the late John McGraw. And the irony was not lost on my friend and I that we were watching a play about inequity where most of the seats cost upwards of $60. Let's leave that aside and talk about the play, my friends said. And for a while we did. We talked about themes and structure and character development and elements of production design and more. We talked spiritedly about this thing we both love, which is art and art making. But I couldn't really set the price tag aside. I couldn't really stop myself from thinking that I was being asked to regard and contemplate inequity for a position of access, access to the cost of a ticket price. But we didn't have to pay for it, my friend says. We were lucky enough to get complimentary tickets. Agreed. We were lucky, but still, who is it for? The question hung in the air. My friend took a cab as I wandered up to my apartment. The cost of making, the cost of doing, or just the cost? When we make work, we perhaps imagine an audience, even if it is an audience of friends. A colleague of mine used to say, I write plays for my salon of friends, whether they show up or not. I used to think knowing your audience was peculiar. Aren't we, after all, supposed to be in a room full of strangers and find ourselves in community? Isn't that what theater does best? But a lot of the time we do know who's in the audience. We invite our friends and colleagues. We invite our peers. We want to be among those we know because they get us. And they may get us a bit more than others because they've seen or read other works of ours and they may have context. And that is a pretty rare thing, unless you're a superstar. I mean, Beyonce's work and image, for one, is constantly being contextualized and recontextualized by fans and critics. And yes, she is a brand, a pop star, a phenomenon. And that is a whole other kind of machinery and application of affect. But she is still someone making things, just like all of us, plowing the field. So, context. Yeah, it feels good. Not fame. Context. Because having context, having a base from which to work, from which others have a way of understanding what you do, perhaps gives you a kind of freedom to keep doing what you do and to push yourself further. Having context means you don't have to necessarily explain yourself all the time and feel as if you're reinventing the wheel. You can trust that the wheel is there. And that even if your friends may not know exactly what you're going to make, they'll have some reference points because they know you. But a room full of strangers, they don't know you at all. So they're walking in blind. And so are you with your work. It's terrifying. It's exhilarating. It's why we do what we do. But it can also be why we don't do what we need to do. Because sometimes we make things out in the wilderness and there is no context whatsoever. And nobody gets it. And you say to yourself, well, I will never do this again. I will never try this thing I wanted to try ever again. And some of that essential potentiality that thing that makes us face the page with equal parts fear and fearlessness goes away. We are diminished. No, we allow ourselves to be diminished by circumstance. And so the artwork changes. And maybe someone someday asks you why and you won't know what to say. Or maybe you will fess up. Or you just may say, well, you see, there was this performance once that had no proper context and it was a failure, or it felt like one. And so I ran away. I ran away from myself. And I went back to stuff that I did, stuff that I knew I could do. And you may say it with a smile or with a twinge of regret. Or you may lie and say, you don't remember at all. Listen, that was another life. My friend, the same friend that saw the play with me that night, says the price tag shouldn't matter. Work is work. Whether the admission price is zero or $150. On principle, I want to believe that. Because work should be work. Whether the budget is $500 or 100000 No price on the imagination. That's the beauty of it, right? But in capitalism, even in late capitalism, even post-capitalism, which some say we are in, value is ascribed to work often because of where it is seen, shown, and or presented. And what the price tag is that comes with it, too. A proper arts venue, in quotes, may be posh. But the lobby, the seats, the toilet stalls, the design of the building, or the art space, or the non-space that is an art space, all of that is part of the event before the event takes place. The event itself is the art, the stuff on the stage, or immersive around you. But it comes with the stuff outside, the stuff that sometimes makes you feel better or more forgiving about the art. Because, well... It may not be that great, but oh, the seats were nice for a change, and the toilet stalls were clean and cared for. And honestly, life's too short, and why suffer to see art, you know? Pain and its glamour. So when we're young, when we're restless and reckless, to quote Adele, there is a kind of outre value placed on pain. Stories of trauma and victimization and violence have a kind of street cred that other stories, you know, ones that do not traffic in pain and its testimonies, cannot simply hold a candle to. In the history of art, the ones who follow the wound, to reference Janais for a second, form a kind of tribe. We are the freaks and outsiders, the outlaws and unsettled queers, restless in our pursuit of the underbelly, the underside, the raw, the ugly, beautiful, and yes, the painful. It is hallowed ground. And I admit that the tribe is one that you grow up with because year after year, new members discover Charles Bukowski, Antonin Artaud, Sarah Kane, and more. We are the glorious freaks. There is beauty in the recognition of our shared pain, even if it is often romanticized. But is work made from pain better than work that is not? Is work witnessed from a comfy chair less worthy or great than one witnessed in a stuffy room in a disused space? Where do we place value and why? So, I aligned with the glorious freaks. I was one of those kids that read our toe and wanted to, to signal through the flames. I sat through a 24-hour marathon of John Cassavetes movies once, instead of standing in queue for the next installment. In the Star Wars franchise. A kind of adverse snobbery to hold. The stuff I loved, the stuff that felt wrought in anger, was real. And that other stuff was plastic. So was it? All of it? Over the years, the tribe has expanded and contracted. We recognize each other across the aisle. We end up going to the same shows, the same movies, and we listen to some of the same music. But anger and pain as a characteristic of value and its attribution has begun to feel less, well, valuable. Not that its effective glamour is not viscerally engaging, but identifying the real versus the plastic has been harder and harder come by, especially when the plastic Has started to mimic the real. I do not regard Genet, Artaud, Kane, Cortez, and Acker any less. I am not turning my back on these and other mad, defiant dreamers and visionaries that have taught me to recognize the incandescent power of art. But I am starting to wonder if the act of seeing, the internal and external act of seeing the self mirrored, this act we call performance has been corrupted somehow by a reification of the exemplary wound. Saints and sinners have a hard time. When I was a child, stories of the saints haunted my Roman Catholic upbringing. Every night I looked up at the figure of Christ on the cross over my bed. My family was not fanatical in any way when it came to organized religion, but living with a wound was something I understood at an early age, and it shaped my imagination. It was only natural that stories of sinners became my furtive literary companions. Anything that felt other to stories of unwavering sacrifice, purity, and faith fascinated me. I hadn't discovered the mystic poet saints yet, St. John of the Cross, St. de avila They would teach me something else about transcendence and possibility. Jim Carroll's Basketball Diaries, another Catholic content tome, and Patti Smith's Horses, which began with its classic line of defiance of empowerment and self-realization, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine, were favorites, and still are. They are totems of a time and still feel like secrets. That only a few others and I know about. But one thing that the saints and sinners did teach me was that contemplation was key to life. Making time to see, to witness, to be with. And That's just an excerpt from the long essay. Um, who is it for? And that's today's episode. As always, this is about you and I here in this theater. You there in the dark, and I here wondering who you are. Wish to click on the listener support button, please do. Thanks for listening. Today for night.